Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks. We are recording from our new studio, so I'm hoping that everyone will notice a big pickup in quality. So after two years of recording from our homes, I'm really thrilled to be here with our first two podcast guests. So I'm Anna Ward, I'm a senior residential analyst at Knight Frank, and our guests today are Stuart Bailey, who heads up our planning department, and David Goatman, who's head of energy here at Knight Frank. Hi, Stuart and David. Hi, Anna. How are you doing? Hi, Anna. So the Queen's speech today uh, covered a lot of new pieces of legislation. So in, in total, 38 new pieces of legislation. So that's up from 30 last year. So Boris Johnson clearly seeking to reboot his premiership um, with a number of wide-ranging pieces of legislation. But in this podcast, what we're doing is focusing on a couple of the bills that I think are most relevant for property and obviously for you guys, most relevant to you as well. So energy security and levelling up and regeneration. So we'll start on energy. So it was, you know, pretty trailed, wasn't it, in the sort of run-up that clearly the energy security bill would form quite a core plank of um, the Queen's speech. So it'd be interesting to hear from you, David, just on sort of what you see as um, currently the key challenges uh, for developers when it comes to transitioning to clean energy and building more sustainable homes and offices. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear today because energy is kind of at a a point of uh, intersection of so many different policy areas at the moment. It's security, it's cost of living, it's low carbon transition, it's infrastructure reinforcement. I mean, all of these things are uh, kind of coming together and, and making energy policy really important. So it's understandable they're bringing, bringing forward a new bill, but the, the challenges around energy are absolutely huge and are not just the challenges that we've seen in the last kind of 12 months to 18 months where it's become front page news as opposed to kind of picking out the rather techie bit in the in the business news where there might be one little story on a utility company now it's the front page yeah. of the times. I mean I guess the distraction is clearly that there's a big focus on on the um, cost of living for consumers so the cap uh, on energy bills being extended but I guess from a development point of view there are sort of bigger forces at work aren't there just in terms of yep. that whole kind of transition piece exactly and it was i think there was a piece in the ft at the weekend which was on the increasing trend in renewable energy development towards pushing what's called dnos district network operators pushing out grid connection dates so you think you can connect your project in 18 months time two years time once you've got planning but actually the DNA is saying, we haven't had the investment. We're not going to make the investment. You need to make the investment. And that's not going to come through on one project alone. So they've got to aggregate projects into uh, to make the investment viable. So the offers are being pushed out to five years, seven years. You know, we've had one recently, which we thought we were going to get an, a connection offer for 2023. And we got a connection off for 2030. So you know, if you get planning in 2023, but you can't actually connect your renewable energy project to the grid till 2030. So that just completely scuppers the pipeline of projects. So there's a massive focus amongst developers of renewable energy projects to get short-term grid connection offers. They're absolute gold dust at the moment. If you've got anything that connects in 2023 or 2024, almost doesn't matter what it costs within reason to get the connection, people will build it. What's the massive block at the moment, apart from planning, which is very, very slow for large-scale renewables projects, is um, the fact that because there hasn't been the investment into the infrastructure, you can't actually get a connection for five or seven years. So that's a big, big problem for okay. the net zero transition. You've which made obviously... my job very easy. You've brought planning in already. Stuart, I know you've got a burning question on the planning side when it comes to sort of net zero. What did you make of, of the energy bill from a kind of planning perspective? What were your... Well, I suppose that's that's my, my main 
question, this is probably back to government really, is how are they going to speed up the delivery of that infrastructure? Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's a capacity issue for, for development more widely and planning is slow at the moment. It's very slow and the, the planning reforms, which we'll come on to later, have been watered down significantly. So are there ways to speed up planning delivery to make sure that that infrastructure is coming online? So we, we need to act now to get both the carbon side of things and also the um the, the sort of energy security issues that we're facing right at the moment yeah okay so is that is that really the number one thing that developers are worried about would you say it, it is but the cost side is as well as yeah. well as just absolutely insane i mean i was with our energy brokers last month and there was a day when you without getting too technical on how energy contracts are priced you couldn't you, you basically couldn't get a price the energy market wouldn't give you a price on that day when the in the midst of the ukraine war impact upon uh, the energy markets more than a day ahead so what the basic amount is the energy market would only price a day ahead. So it's the equivalent of being only being able to fix your mortgage one day at a time. So you're not getting a one-year deal or a two-year deal. You're saying, well, your interest rate will be until tomorrow. Crazy, isn't it? Has that, has that eased off That's a bit eased now? off, and you're now, getting, you're now getting offers. But the risk is massively priced in. Mm. So again, you know, very much in the press recently, some of the big utility companies are saying the level of government support needs to be massively more, you know, 1,000 or 2,000 pounds per household for people to be able to afford bills from October. So the cost increases are absolutely huge. And you put that together with very limited investment historically into grid and a really slow planning process, and you don't have a great recipe for no. for, for the energy infrastructure in the country. Just to add a, another layer to that, <laughs> obviously the government's already sort of kind of cracked the whip on new providers of new homes. So developers from, I think it's June the 15th, they're mandated to ensure they've got a 30% reduction in emissions on new homes. But I was interested to hear from you on how you think that will sort of be tracked on a sort of day-to-day -day basis. I mean, it, it seems like they've thrown something in the air, but how will we sort of know how that's going? Yeah, no, it's a good question. How's it going to be monitored? How's it going to mm. be reported upon? And what's the kind of methodology and process that developers are advised to follow to achieve those kind of carbon reductions? And again, it, it comes back in a large part to the energy infrastructure that's going into the building, thermal efficiency and so on. Developers know how to build very thermally efficient properties. But if you can't put a boiler in, which mm. you can't increasingly, then you have to go with new technology. There's a new cost to that. Government have been pushing people very much in the direction of heat pumps, much, much bigger heat pumps. That's an electrification technology. So what do you do with the gas grid? So I think developers are understandably asking a lot of questions around, well, you set up a policy direction, but basically are we all just going to have to put in massive heat pumps? because that seems to be what government wants us to do. But I'm very nervous about government picking technological winners and saying, well, you should all just do this, because that's going to lead to a very distorted market and you know, very limited technological options for developers. And as you say, well, even if they you know, bite the bullet and, and go with a particular technology, then they've got to monitor those savings going forward and report them somehow, measure them somehow. The whole EPC system is being reviewed Bayes are, are conducting a review on that at the moment because EPCs aren't deemed to be fit for purpose anymore. They're an asset rating, not an operational rating. I mean, do you think that 30% reduction is even feasible? I mean, Stuart mentioned obviously the planning question as well. Like, you know, given that all of this is up in the air, it's not clear when the infrastructure will be ready. There's a lot of focus on insulation, but actually nothing I was going to ask you was um, clearly we're still building with concrete, aren't we? So yeah, there's, there's it, not much kind of shift towards sort of, I know there's new timber buildings out there and so on, but it's hardly like a kind of regular thing to see. Yeah, and actually it was, it was a topic of one of Stuart's um, events, I recall last year was how do you build tall without those traditional materials of, of either steel frame or, or concrete? 
which there's still very few examples anywhere in the world of being able to build build tall on the, on the commercial side. But also, traditionally, construction in this country has been brick, or very limited wood construction. So, yeah, it, it, again, it's that's a big challenge, and and the measurement of the carbon, you know, that that the methodology following that scopes one, two, and three abiding by some kind of regulated methodology and, and process which, which is recognized across the industry that's a challenge in and of itself how do you measure this and how do you report on it accurately but yeah i mean concrete and steel are very carbon intensive materials and that's what we tend to build out of so you know that again is a massive supply chain change in yeah. the uk in a time where supply chains are <laughs> hardly robust not, not <laughs> yeah. exactly firing on all cylinders Okay, well, quite a mixed picture there. Uh, moving on to planning, I don't think it's looking so much better on, on your side of the fence. It's a really depressing it? series of topics to <laughs> change. It's very depressing. <laughs> I mean, we were obviously several months ago, there had been a wholesale change promise for planning, the biggest shake up in a generation, I believe. But clearly, any of those sort of major reforms are really notably absent from the Queen's speech. I mean, we, there was a bit of tinkering around the edges, and the levelling up bill does include some changes for planning but yeah what was your take on it because obviously it's such a massively slimmed down version of what had been promised so many months ago yeah absolutely Anna you know on one hand I was I was quite excited about some of the reforms that were being proposed back in 2020 there was a lot of good thinking fresh ideas coming forward from from non-planners as well the government had gone out and got a task force together of people you know planners and people outside the industry to come in with with, with new ways of thinking unfortunately it does seem that Mm-hmm. Most of those ideas have been thrown in the scrap heap, you know, zoning, accelerated planning, depoliticizing the planning system and the growth areas that were talked about have all been um, consigned to the scrap heap, I think. It's a little bit worrying, you know, there was, there was very little in the Queen's speech itself, but Michael Gove was talking over the weekend about housing targets perhaps being less of a priority. And that, that to me, is a worry. We've got massive housing needs in this country and the carrot and stick approach of of, of trying to encourage authorities to deliver housing um, with with housing targets has been used. It's perhaps not been effective because planning policy is not caught up with it, but certainly it was there and it was was an understood principle and it allowed things to go forward at appeal that maybe didn't get decided locally because of local politics. So it worries me that we seem to be backing away from that a little bit. Yeah, it did seem that Michael Gove sort of trailed most of it on the weekend in the press, but the actual speech that Prince Charles delivered didn't really go into much detail. But one of his big things is obviously getting rid of Section 106 agreements potentially. What are your thoughts on on the sort of new levy he's suggesting? As it seems to have had not the warmest reception in the industry generally. Yeah, and I think I think people don't understand how it can be implemented yeah. because effectively we're taking affordable housing out of Section 106 and putting it into a new nationalised levy, now the national levy, the economics of it will work differently in different parts of the country. So I don't know how that will be standardised. It seems that it's going to be a levy on sales value as well. Now, the big question is, is where does the land come from? If you're going to encourage councils to start direct development themselves, um, perhaps you know RPs and housing associations to do that as well, they're going to need the land to do that. And how do you create these mixed and balanced communities if you're, if you're creating areas of entirely affordable housing? So I'm not sure, I'm not clear, we need to see the detail of how that's going to work, but it does seem ill thought out at the moment. There's a lot of other things are captured by Section 106, legal requirements and other things that um, wouldn't sit in this in this levy as well. So what, what happens to those in the absence of 106? Yeah. And, and it doesn't seem to address, I think, you know, you touched on this earlier, the, the fact that we've clearly got a shortage of developable land to build on at the moment, which the previous um, reforms were sort of more geared up to address. 
absolutely right. Your private house builders are competing with build to rent providers are competing with logistics in, in, in some areas as well for land at the moment. So where does that land come from? Mm. And what about the, some, there was a couple of other things in there. One more on the sort of commercial property side, landlords being forced to rent out empty shops and retail units. Do you see that being sort of effective on, on regenerating high streets? Well, I'm looking for some positives here and I'm struggling a little bit. I think on the empty shops front, you know, again, we need to see the details of how they intend to empower local councils to to deal with that and actually force landlords to, to lower rents. That seems to be what they're trying to achieve. But it's more complicated than that because it's about business rates as well. There's lots of reasons yeah. why these units are sitting vacant. The government, to be fair, has tried through the use class order to, to reform that and create some more flexibility to move between uses. They've also brought in permitted development rights and, and tried to achieve that flexibility there as well. And what we're seeing, we're seeing quite a lot of interest in that. We're also seeing local authorities being quite resistant to it. And you know where where retail has been the permitted use, they're, they're trying to hold these these uses in, in retail. So it comes down to both a, a demand, a cost value position and the sort of simple economics um, argument as to why these retail units are sitting empty at the moment okay and then what about the, the other detail that grove has been talking to the press around um sort of local design codes sort of a bit of a nod to give residents a bit more say i mean do you think that will be effective in, in boosting housing delivery or at least so it's getting people more on board with housing deliveries probably the better way to put it I think a consistent message from government over the last few years is about trying to boost the knowledge within communities of, of, of what the planning process is and how development works. And it's also about making it accessible to people and it's about bringing in technology to make data accessible and interpretable for local people. And, and the government is piloting a, a number of schemes at the moment to try and make planning more accessible and understandable and virtual platforms and AI and, and, and all these things coming into trying try to help with planning. It does feel like a, a hark back to localism. It does feel like perhaps we're all NIMBYs at heart. And if we're getting involved in the decision making in local areas, we may be resistant to development. And that is my concern, I suppose, with with all of this. Um, again, Michael Gove referred at one point over the, over the weekend in his commentary to, you know, voting street by street if necessary around the sort of design codes. Now we're all familiar with the, the Jackie Weaver and the Parish Council. Um, yeah, stuff or even, that was going even on. just a WhatsApp group for one street would be difficult to field, I think. So, Absolutely yeah. right. So you could end up pitting communities against each other through this process. And I think the other thing that you know we grapple with as as professionals is is dealing with the complexities of of planning and design. You know, very very subjective views on on design, and you know the sort of esoteric complexities of development viability as to why you know. Building at four stories is more economic for the developer than building at two stories or whatever that, that might be. So how you bring those skills to the community and actually help them to, to, to develop these design codes is going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. And my fear is that it, it further delays and divides in getting these things forward. But in principle, it could end up raising the quality of design, which, um, which I think we're all welcome. Yeah. I think... I mean, let's face it, the government has an unprecedented set of circumstances to deal with and it's they have a lot of complex issues to, to address. I agree with some of the points that David made about you know, the log jams in the, in the planning process being a real stumbling block and that's not just in energy, that's, in, that, that's across the board at the moment. I think the key point for me that it's implied, I, th I think working with communities and getting them to understand the, the, sort of the planning balance of these things is important to get across. You know, in, in the Netherlands, for example, kids at school are very in tune with what planning is about. 
that's not just a sort of design factor, but you know the balancing of of energy versus economics versus residential supply. That's all part of the understanding of planning. And I think in this country, there's very little understanding of planning. Um, I still go to dinner parties and people think I design roundabouts and road layouts. You know, it's not what it, what is planning. Um, so getting that understanding out there, getting attracting more people into the industry as well was a part of the issues. Um, you know, it's labor shortages and planning yeah. as, as we're seeing in construction generally. Yeah. And trying to get that that understanding in there. But, you know, this unfortunately is not the right time to make major planning reforms in a political spectrum. No. And that ultimately is why. But you, you think yeah. design codes are a good move, essentially? I think design codes done correctly and not being overly specific are. So a design not code. Not street by yeah, street, which yeah, does feel Yeah, you need to allow harsh. for innovation. <laughs> we've, we've got some of the best yeah. architects in the world in the UK and. Uh, we've got some of the most complex heritage in the world in the UK and, and to design things street by street is, is almost entirely mm. impossible. Okay, well, I, f I feel like we've had, a, you know, a good overview there. Obviously, it did start with a fairly uh, downbeat tone, but <laughs> we've brought it back. So thank you so much for joining me, uh, Stuart and David. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks so for more analysis, you can subscribe to our research note, which goes out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. You can see our show notes for more details on that. And please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and listen out for our next episode in two weeks. Thank you for listening to this week's Intelligence Talks.